Good afternoon. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. I'm Director of the Institute for Government. I'm delighted to welcome you here this afternoon for this In Conversation with Robert Choate. Robert, as you know, is the Chair of the Office of Budget Responsibility and has been that for uh, since, since 2010, having been reappointed for a second term and before that was for eight years at, uh, Director of the uh, Institute for Fiscal Studies and before that, Economics Editor of the FT. And we are delighted to have him here to talk about many, many things. Um, so the conversation outside was sort of converging on one or two uh, in the, under the headings of independence and Brexit and so on. And I know there are going to be a lot of questions, so I'll leave time for questions. Uh, Robert, uh, welcome. Thanks for coming to the Institute. Thank you for the invitation. Let me kick off with one of the things that is indisputably hot at the moment, which is the question of independence. The OBR was set up, um, as we all know, to um, uh, to be an independent forecasting body. Has it worked in that sense, do you think? Um, well, others are better judges of that uh, than I am. Independence is very much in the eye of, of the beholder. I think the way in which we approached it was obviously to think carefully about the formal structures which help deliver you independence. And this has been an issue for us as well as the 40 or other countries that have institutions of, of, uh, of a similar type elsewhere. And so issues around your entitlement to information, the processes for hiring and firing people, uh, your, the way your budget is set, all of those are important things in sort of providing a, uh, uh, a foundation for independence. But at the end of the day, you demonstrate independence by the way you do the job day in and day out. And there, when I started, I was basically, I had two priorities in, in doing that, and one of which was to increase the amount of transparency and the amount of information that is available about the public finances uh, for people who are interested and want to, to look into that. We can't promise to provide more accurate forecasts. You hope to do that, but you can promise to provide more and better information for people to draw their own conclusions from. And the second element was to put front and centre an emphasis on the uncertainty that lies around almost all the projections and forecasts and judgments that you make. I think it is inherently easier for technocrats to be honest about the degree of confidence and the degree of ignorance with which you have to work than it is for politicians in similar situations who have to engage in what you might call conviction forecasting, which is to stick with the particular view that they've expressed until it becomes so patently obvious that it's not actually consistent with reality that you have to move away from it. Uh, it is easier for us as time goes by to reflect new data, to make new judgments and to explain people why we're doing that without suffering that sort of reputational cost that politicians uh, worry about. So I think those have been important elements in, 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 in trying to establish our independence in people's minds. But as I say, at the end of the day, I'm the last person who should judge that. Yeah. Um, but nonetheless, on, on that, do you feel there's been any challenges to your independence? No, I mean, we've had, I'm, I, in a sense, I have been surprised that the the nature of the political, small p political working relationships that are necessary in this sort of, of organisation uh, have been as, as smooth as they have. Whatever you think of the, of the policies of all the individuals concerned, uh, the, the chancellors with whom we have dealt have been very straight with us. I have not read news, maybe I haven't been reading widely enough, I've not read newspaper stories with unattributable sources close to Chancellor saying that we are clowns or frauds. Uh, I'm not sure I would have you know, bet you a large sum of money before taking the job on in the first place that that would happen. Uh, the professionalism of 
the officials in the departments that we rely most on for the inputs into the work that we do, which are probably uh, Revenue and Customs and the Department for Work and Pensions, uh, Debt Management Office, etc., uh, is also a source of you know, considerable reassurance in that. But you know, it's something you can never be complacent about, and you're yeah. always trying to demonstrate it as best you can. Let me pick up that point, because as you said, you rely on some government departments very much for the inputs into the models that you're making. Just can you take us through the extent to which you do take government numbers and put them into your models? And, and are forced to do so. Yes, I mean, this, this is the difference between uh, the sort of model that we have versus the sort of model you find, for example, in the Netherlands or in the United States with the Congressional Budget Office, both mm. of which are necessarily much larger organisations mm. because they do a lot more of their work in-house. Uh, for things like a tax forecast, for example, uh, we do, rather than having all the models and all the intelligence operated internally, we... Uh, deal with systematically the experts on the particular area of tax in revenue and customs, for example. So if they have sort of good intelligence on what's developing with the data coming in, if they have ideas about how to model the, uh, the, the movements in the tax mm. revenues better, we can take all of that into account. At the end of the day, they are our forecast, so we can tell them what to stick in yep. the machine and we take responsibility for what comes out of it. And there is nothing that binds those departments to they can have a different view if they want to that's no that's no problem at all uh, but it is i think a sensible model to use that expertise across the uh, across the piece rather than to basically end up being a 400 person organization trying to do it all uh, all ourselves yeah, and you're a 30 person organization we're a 30 person yeah. organization so we're slightly smaller so, i think than the median uh, institution of this type no, absolutely worth remembering but if we just stay on this for a second i mean what do you do about um you know projections of public spending for example supposing uh you know the government has said oh, well, we're going to spend you know xyz or something on public spending um and yet that seems incompatible with some policy statement or something do, do you take a judgment or do you simply take the public spending figure uh well what we do and we are constrained by parliament to produce our forecasts on the basis of current government policy not to look at uh at broader options now obviously that raises exactly what does one mean by current government policy it doesn't mean government policy objectives, because clearly one of the government's policy, yeah. it is the government's policy to balance the budget by the mid-2020s. Yeah. It's our job to see whether they're on it course to do it. Yeah. So that would be you know, ridiculous if we, if we took it at that level. Same applies with the migration uh, target. We, you know, it's not in their direct ability to deliver tens of thousands migration, and we, don't, we haven't assumed that that's happened. But obviously where the government does have the power to set uh, the details of policy, for example, on uh, the uh, generosity of particular bits of the welfare system, tax rates and thresholds, the sorts of guilts it wants to issue, then that is concrete policy and we can take that on board. So focusing in particular on public spending, you can distinguish between those bits of public spending that you actually generate a forecast for based on particular policy settings. And that's obviously yes. true for most of the yeah. welfare system. Then there's also you generate a forecast for debt interest spending based on the stock of mm. debt, what's happened to interest rates, what's happened to inflation, etc., etc. You then have uh, data, what you might think of as day-to-day -day and capital spending by government departments. So uh, education, uh, health, transport, grants to local mm. government, uh, etc. Uh, and in that sort of area, you 
the, what we get the government to do is to give us what are called departmental expenditure limits, which it sets a ceiling over the horizon of a spending review, which is a, a given number of years, three or four typically. Uh, and you know, we take that then as the basis, and then the government will also say what numbers they would pencil in beyond the period of the spending review if it doesn't yes. go right the way yes. to the end of our, of our yeah. five-year forecast. The judgment we then make is on based on history, on the particular pressures that are showing up at the time, do we think that limit will be over or underspent? And historically, it is almost always underspent. It's a, it's a feature of the UK public expenditure system that we have a relatively cent, uh, you know, centralised, relatively treasury strong system. So departments, certainly in aggregate, and typically individually as well, very rarely change the uh, overstep those limits. Now, that's not to say, of course, the government doesn't change the limits, and that's an important lever that it has available yep. to deliver the path of government borrowing that we eventually forecast. So your choice there is, do, do we do a forecast on the basis of what the government says it is going to do, or on the basis of what we guess it might do? Well, you, this is exactly what I'm asking. You could approach yeah. it either way, but I think if you want to hold the government to account, mm. the thing to do is the former one. You hold them to account for well, what, what they said. say they're going yes. to do, and quite often you draw little charts that indicate some curious features of what they say they're going to do. Perhaps parts of spending that go up and down or, or drop off to rates that you haven't seen for X number of years, etc. And people can draw their own conclusions from that mm. about how plausible that is. Uh, there would be alternative ways of doing it, which is to say, should you produce a forecast on the basis of what you would need to spend to deliver constant quality and quantity of public services, which is, I think, an interesting question for people to try to answer, but it's yes. not a sensible one for right. us to answer, right. because the decision of what you want to deliver yeah. in quality and quantity is, is one of the policy <laughs> instruments that you have available to you to deliver a fiscal consolidation or to loosen right. So that's something that needs to be done within the government itself. And, and obviously it's something where external experts, particularly obviously the, you know, Rusi on defence, yeah. uh, you know, the King's Fund on health, etc., would have particular expertise on how plausible those areas yeah. are. But uh, indeed, we started running a version of this through our performance tracker, uh, money going into public services and what comes out, led by Emily Andrews. Indeed, which um, gives you a yeah. very good sense, and we've 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 used that for. Um, some of the work we've done on risks where we can go a little bit further than say, you know, let's look at health, for example, yes. and say that, you know, the pressures here yeah. do look as though they're going in one direction rather than the other. So you might want to think about that in thinking about the possibility that right. policy So that's as far change. as you go, saying, look, yeah. look, here, here are the pressures, here are, as you said, some interesting uh, trends that you might want to think about this. No, exactly, so that's, because... That's, if, that's taken you up to the edge of your remit. Indeed, because if we, if we simply said, this is what we guess the government will do, we're letting them off the hook, because they will just say, well, that's not what we're intending to do, so your entire judgment about whether we're going to hit this target or not is just predicated on your own fantasies about what you think we're going to spend. And if you go back five or six years and look at the way in which departmental spending has been cut since then, I suspect that a lot of people who would have tried to make that judgment five or six years ago would have said we would never get as far as we have. So it, it would, it's a very difficult and intrinsically political judgment to have to make. How have you coped then with the impact of Brexit? You have produced one uh, comment and model since the referendum saying I think that it would cost, uh, it could cost uh, Britain up to 300 million a week uh, over the period of 2021. Is that right? How, how have you gone about uh, looking at the, uh, 
many well, uncertainties, if I can put it that way. Yes, sure. I mean, the, well, the starting point for this is the job that Parliament has given us, which, as I say, is to produce yeah. forecasts on the basis of current government policy, which in this area is, uh, is a somewhat fluid concept. Um, so for that reason, we did not produce a forecast ahead of the referendum of what would happen if there was a vote to leave, because it was not then government policy no. to leave, and it's not been an entirely happy experience for everybody who did do forecast then uh, subsequently. What we then did, of course, is that once there had been a vote to leave, we needed to reflect that in the forecast that we did, and we did that in the November 2016 forecast. And the view that we took then, that we have stuck to subsequently, is that we have no proper basis to predict or to interpret government policy as being a particular outcome of the negotiations, which, are, you know, as we can see in real time, are still fluid and, and the government is making its own mind up uh, on the position there. So what we did was to make a set of broad brush assumptions that were sort of consistent... About things like immigration and... The, the, of the, trade intensity, intensities. of the fact that you were likely to see weaker business investment than you otherwise would do while there was a degree of uncertainty about where you were going to to end up. And what we tried to do was in that, in that forecast document to be as transparent as we could about what the, the sum total of the Brexit-related judgments we had made was, which ended up to be a hit of about 15 billion mm -hmm. to borrowing at the end o of the Over this year. period of 2021. At the end yep, of, the, yep, at the end of that the period. End of the, yep. uh, and to break it down between, as you say, uh, migration, uh, the cyclical weakness of the economy, changes in interest mm -hmm. rates, uh, inflation, etc. Uh, now, st starting where we are now, we're still not in a position to, to tie it to any more precise outcome because we still don't know what that outcome will be. And eventually, of course, when, when the government has something that it's ready to present to Parliament, we'll then be able to say, well, this is now clearly expressed government policy and we can incorporate this in the, the forecast that we do. The one area where we will be able to go further than we have done to date in the near term is on the financial Settlement, so the, the concrete flow of money between us and the uh, the EU, rather than the broader economic yep. effects, because the uh, the draft agreement which was reached at the end of last year is sufficiently firm enough for us when we get to March to be able to say this is what we think that the flow of ongoing contributions would be under that draft agreement. Right. Except uh, we still don't know, among the many things we don't know, whether we might be paying for access to. To markets and so on. No, so that additional, what you might additionally want to spend, but yes. the, the settlement in terms of, you know, the period over which you continue to contribute as a member, yeah. the resta liquide, which is a sort of yeah. the, the remaining money for commitments yeah. that have already been yeah. made. So there's, uh, and then you have some broader liabilities, like things like pensions, where you yeah. can take that. Then, as you say, there is an additional policy decision that the government has to make about what's voluntary additional contributions does it want to make to participate in particular things. There will then be other decisions it has to make about there is money that the EU spends in the UK, do they want to spend it on the same thing or on something else or do they want to spend other things. So what we've done so far is to make uh, what you would call a fiscally neutral assumption which is to say that uh, if there is a, you know, a reduction, complete or partial, 
in these expenditure transfers to the EU, we assume for the purposes of our forecast for the public finances that those are spent on something else. In the UK. In the UK, exactly. So what we're basically saying, we are assuming that none of the the direct proceeds of reduced contributions are going to be devoted to deficit reduction. Uh, so that is. So any Brexit dividend. Is that's right. go, go, go so if there is a reduction in the contributions that we make, and the government yeah. chooses to spend it on the NHS or some form of agricultural support, yeah. that won't make our public finance numbers look yeah. worse because we're assuming that that would be spent. Obviously, when we get close to the time, the government will need to be more concrete about that. It'll need to decide whether and by how much to increase these departmental expenditure limits we were talking about in order to incorporate that. But that seems a sensible uh, basis to proceed on at the moment. And and what we'll be able to do in March is simply, rather than what we do at the moment, which is to say, let's do a forecast based on what we would be contributing if we remained a member and just assume that at some point we stop paying it to Brussels but we start spending it on something else, we'll have a rather, you know more intricate chart rather than just a sort of cut off from yeah, one so to the other at an arbitrary point. Yeah. And I'll come on to what we might spend it on in a, in a moment. Um, what, what do you, what, what's your view of the past week's row about the independence and neutrality or otherwise of treasury models? Um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's not been a happy uh, period. Uh, I think it's fair to say that um, you know, there's clearly a logical case for having a good study done of the economic impact of the different models that the government, or the different uh, seems potential to be an, outcomes. An, it seems to be an understatement, but anyway. That the government is, is, the government is, good case for doing this. is yes. thinking of looking at. Um, and I think there's also a case for saying that in the current environment, it's not entirely surprising that if you do a lot of that work and you circulate it around government, it's not entirely surprising that it leaks and gets into the public domain. So I think in an ideal world, you would have embarked upon this exercise in the hope and expectation that you end up with a published project yeah. outcome that can be shared with the public in general as well as, uh, as, well as uh, within And then government. if people disagree with it, they can, they can say why they disagree with it and exactly. take the models apart and so on. Exactly. Um, and I think that... The Institute is very firmly in favour of publishing these models, in case you're in any doubt at all. Yeah, I, I would distinguish slightly between the models mm. and uh, the broader judgments. I, as with macroeconomic forecasting, it's easy to get hung up about the idea that the interesting results of these things are driven by models. So that some mm-hmm. people have this idea that there's some sort of vast neoliberal supercomputer in the Treasury mm-hmm. basement that you know, generates particular mm-hmm. results, etc. Almost all the interesting results you get out of mm-hmm. thinking about the outlook for the economy, about thinking about... Uh, these sorts of issues of of the impact of different uh, Brexit scenarios is down to the judgments and the assumptions that you you put in. Mm. And those are things that whoever does those, does that work, if it was the OBR, I don't think it would be sensible for, uh, for us to do it. If it was done outside, if it was done within government, no one should take those sorts of results entirely at face value. What you want to do is to say, what are the key judgments and assumptions that are driving this result? And how sensitive are the numbers that you get out at the end to exactly what those assumptions are? So I hope that as and when this does all become public, at the moment I know no more than you read on on BuzzFeed, uh, that that will be a key part of the explanations out there. It's not, you know, whether it's two, five and eight, 
is only interesting up to a point. It's the, well, what is it that's actually... Have they assumed a US trade deal? How, how, how sensitive is trade with Europe that's to, right. to getting uh, slightly more difficult and expensive, exactly. that kind of thing? Exactly. Um, and in terms of the independence of all of this process, I think given the range of issues that you are looking at, that it, it, it's, it's perfectly sensible to do this as an exercise taking on board the inputs of experts across given, of analysts across given different government departments. In an ideal world, I think you would accompany that whole exercise with an advisory group of outside people, including hopefully at least one who thinks that Brexit is an economic positive, who would be able to, to look at that, you know, the drafts of that work as it was coming on to provide input, to provide suggestions, to satisfy themselves about the integrity of the process, and then also to be in a good position to comment in an informed way when the outcome's at the, at the end. I mean, none of those people would then be committed to agree with what emerges at the end. This is quite typical of... Uh, you know, when think tanks organise big commissions or when you have large academic projects, you often muster together a group of people who can provide you useful independence advice as you go along and are then able to comment sensibly on it after you finish without in any way requiring them to sign up to whatever the, result, whatever the, uh, the final results are. Um, well, we'll, 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 see, we'll, see, we'll see where that goes. Um, just, just staying on Brexit for a second, though, did your assumptions change um, after the Lancaster House speech a year ago? Or you're saying you've, you've had one go at this and really don't feel in a position to do it again until there is something very firm? No, I mean, basically, yeah. we, we took the broad brush assumptions, uh, which, as you say, dominated by things that affect productivity, uh, uh, the yeah. migration, trade intensity, so less, you know, less, economic, less imports yeah. and exports yeah. in, to in total. Uh, and you know we did that in November 16, and we haven't updated yeah. that yet. And I think the sensible yeah. thing to do is to wait yeah. until there is a clear, um, you know, uh, a government you know position upon which we can then which we can then incorporate. And then obviously what we will want to do is to be as transparent as we can about where that has led us to change the assumptions that we're making already, mm. and how much quantitative impact that has. It isn't that long since you produced uh, your comments on productivity ahead of the autumn budget, which uh, then so um, uh, dramatically constrained the Chancellor as, as it was presented. So, uh, you know, right, not that much time has gone by. But um, on, on, on productivity, what, um, what, what are you looking at now? I mean, that, that had a lot of impact, obviously, on projections about growth and where the UK was going to be in some years' time. And what are the kind of questions you're looking at in the, in the year to, to come? Well, as, as you say, that was an exercise in really taking a step back and looking at the performance of productivity growth in the UK over the period mm -hmm. since the financial crisis versus the decades before. It's not actually clear that the, the break-in pattern was bang on the financial mm -hmm. crisis. There's an argument for saying that actually it was showing up, uh, showing up before then. Uh, and basically there had been a variety of explanations for why productivity growth should be so much weaker than it had been prior to the financial crisis and in the early years when we were doing uh, this work a lot of those explanations were tied very clearly to temporary consequences of the crisis itself but as time has gone by and the period of weak uh, performance has gone on further, it's less plausible to, to pin it on temporary things that are going to reverse relatively quickly. And you're left in a, you know, 
in a, in a process that, that, to which you can apply only limited science of saying how much weight do we place on this very different weak performance that we've seen mm. since the crisis versus the earlier, earlier stronger period. Now, there are some economists who basically take a more pessimistic view that what we've seen in the last few years is the new normal. So there's the sort of the Bob Gordon view, which is fundamentally we've had three industrial revolutions and that's your lot. Yeah. Uh, so therefore don't expect to return to, to, to more vigorous... For all the discussion of the, the, the digital revolution and all this kind of exactly. stuff. Exactly. He the, the says, well, you know, that's the, actually the, not helping. The best is in the past. The yeah. best is in yeah. the past. Uh, and there are those who say, well, nothing fundamentally has changed. Why should we now suddenly be that much less productive? We're going to end up going back to the, the past. So not entirely surprisingly, we've ended up somewhere between the two of those. I think that the, the combination of the fall in unemployment and evidence of labour market tightening and the fact that you are gradually seeing expectations that interest rates will begin to pick up are both things that you would expect to, uh, to be a stimulus to higher productivity growth and, mm. and therefore we are expecting that or we are uh, assuming that and, uh, and that's why we're, not at the, we're staying at the, the, uh, the gloomy end of the spectrum. But there is enormous, because nobody really understands the productivity puzzle, mm. uh, there is enormous uncertainty about that and you, you have to make the judgment uh, as best you can. It's also, coming back to your earlier points about Brexit, going to make it very complicated even after the event to judge what the impact of Brexit has been because it will be virtually impossible to disentangle it from how the productivity puzzle would or would not That's have really resolved itself yeah. if Brexit had never happened. happened. You'll be able to get some sense of that from a comparison with other countries. So one of the, uh, one of the other reasons for moving the, the productivity projections down last autumn is not merely that we've seen in the UK this relatively weak extended period, but that it's been common to a lot of industrial countries. More hmm. severe here than in most, but it's quite striking. If you look at the way in which we have revised our projections for underlying trend productivity growth and the potential growth of the economy and compare them to what the Congressional Budget Office has mm, done mm. for the United States. They're remarkably similar. Mm. Just take one, one, um, one bit of this uh, infrastructure spending. Um, I'd love to know what kind of um, assumptions you make about uh, what it does to economic growth. We had a big event here this morning launching uh, an infrastructure report, the sixth in a series, which was the culmination of a year's work here arguing on uh, about how the UK could make better infrastructure decisions and pointing out that not all of the spending is good and some of it ends up in white elephants and some of it is good but really expensive and so on. Uh, how have you approached this in your I mean, thinking? we intend to incorporate, I mean, I mean, essentially as part of the broader analysis of government capital spending more, mm. more broadly. Uh, and we would take account of that in the, in the short-term forecast as a contributor to GDP. Uh, what you tend not to, and this is partly because of the time horizon over which we're looking, if you know, big infrastructure decisions are made around you know, HS2, new runways, etc., mm. that the length of time that it takes to actually get from, yes, this is a good idea, to shovels in the ground, to it's up and running, to it has a measurable effect on the underlying mm. growth potential of the economy is way, way beyond the five-year forecast horizon that we're doing. So much as with, for example, you know, statements about we're going to liberalise planning reform, mm -hmm. it's one of those areas where I think you wait to see it in the data rather than saying, oh, yeah, we're going to bank that straight away. What do you make of the um, 
IFG's uh, recommendation, which we're delighted to see the Chancellor did pick up, would have just one uh, fiscal event, one, one budget a year. Uh, it's a noble objective, not the first time it's been tried. Uh, I think only time will tell uh, is, the, is the short answer. I think that... That sounds like scepticism, that hmm? it's going to last. In the part, you know, Gordon Brown had the idea we should have a pre-budget report, which is a largely consultative exercise, and all the action takes place in one uh, particular budget. At the end, you know, it didn't take long before it boils down to you have two... Uh, you know, two fiscal events of broadly equal significance and quite often autumn statements would have larger fiscal impact than, than budget. So I think it's an entirely uh, noble and commendable uh, you know, uh, journey to set out on and we'll see how it looks in two or three years' time. Okay, what about another of the, um, the objectives? Uh, some officials say that they crave to have more public discussion, more kind of testing of ideas before the budget, the rabbits out of the hat finally, finally are produced. Uh, in order to avoid, you know, sudden U-turns on uh, pasty taxes and this kind of thing. Is, is, that, is that realistic? I think, again, it's something that's always worth going in that direction when you can. Obviously, you know, as, you know, when I was at the uh, IFS, we had a big exercise in the Murleys Review, which was a whole argument for saying one ought to think in long-term, holistic sense about the design of the tax system, and that should inform uh, budget judgments. Uh, there are obviously some budget decisions that you cannot surface publicly beforehand because the people's behaviour will respond and adjust to it. There are some when it's, it's difficult to avoid giving some advance notice, for example, when people knew in advance that the higher rate of income tax was moving up or down, mm -hmm. you get colossal amounts of money you know, for those people who are able to decide whether they take their income in one tax year or another people respond very efficiently to those sorts of incentives. So uh, it's, it's not always a good idea to, to be upfront about those sorts of things, but clearly in terms of the, the longer term structural discussion of the tax system and the idea of having a, of a strategy, a vision of where you want the tax system to be going mm. and, and getting public buy-in for that, you know, the more the better. Do you think the government's ability to collect tax is in trouble? Just extending this conversation a bit. And I'm thinking particularly of corporation tax and the debate at the moment about whether you can get large corporations to uh, recognise an obligation, if you like, to one country rather than another or to their... I think there are always an area, I mean, we, this is an area that uh, in the fiscal risks report back mm. in July, we looked at a number of areas of the tax mm. uh, system where, you know, there is uncertainty and risks around how much you can, you can raise in the future. Uh, and that's one area. There are also issues like, you know, what you get from fuel duty and tobacco duty mm. because of changes in technology yeah. and of consumer tastes, etc. What's it, al alcohol duty? You know, uh, you know, there are changes in trends, behaviour there, aggregate drinking, people drinking more gin, which, you know, take as a good or a bad thing, depending on how you look at it. Uh, then the other, one, the, the other one, which has been very live uh, in the last few years of our forecast, has been in corporations, where, which is people, you know, be, be, being companies and mm. taking their income in the form of, of, of dividends uh, there, where... It's partly because there are tax advantages to doing so, uh, but also because for many people that's a, a more convenient way to work given the, the nature of work now. But that's had, that's had they're, they're quite large quantitative yeah. effects and it's something where, you know, for example, we've also seen the, the broader national accounts uh, are now showing that, you know, there were big revisions in the last set of national accounts because 
people's dividend income was clearly a lot bigger than the ONS had anticipated, which also meant that companies weren't sorting away quite as much money that they weren't then investing than people had mm. anticipated. So uh, these sorts of, of, of revenue sustainability issues are important in their own right, but also, you know, they can tell you that there may be things going on in the makeup of income and spending in the economy that aren't immediately obvious. Let me ask you finally a point that Andy Haldane made, uh, was the chief economist of the Bank of England, made uh, here uh, last year. And it was in the context of, uh, of Brexit and the referendum. But it was to say that, look, economics has really got a, a problem, which is in um, sort of communicating itself to people. Or politicians have a problem communicating economics to people. Um, one, they may not be interested. Or two, they may say, look, you're talking about uh, national aggregates that have got no kind of resonance with me. And that doesn't, you know, uh, maybe the country is gained from immigration or trade or something. But I personally haven't. And uh, he, he, he made a, a pitch for the um, uh, difficulty of his um, uh, profession, if you like, in, um, in making its arguments. Do, do, do you have a view on this? Uh, you know, I can see where some of that's coming from. I mean, part of the, the concern of some economists is obviously that, you know, they all assume that when, when forecasters get blamed for getting everything wrong, all economists are labelled with that these people, you know, couldn't work their way out of a paper bag, look, they just keep getting this stuff wrong. Of course, an awful lot of the, of the economics that economists do doesn't have anything to do with macroeconomic mm. forecasting. So that's an important point to bear in mind. As you say, there are then issues about, you know, how does this translate to real people's lives? What are your measures of, you know, uh, what we're getting out of the economy, out of, you know, so people will look at well-being and happiness as well as uh, things. The idea, I think, there is some magic index as an alternative to GDP that will tell you everything you want to know is for the birds. Uh, you need to look at you know, the numbers and the information, qualitative and quantitative, that you look at depends on the questions that you're trying to answer. From the perspective of, the, of, of those of us in the forecasting profession, I come back to this idea of the fact that you, you just need to be clear about what the uncertainties are. You know, the fact that it is very difficult to do this and that you know you always end up having to say well things didn't turn out quite as we anticipated and we've moved on is not a reason to throw your hands up and say the whole exercise is a waste of time all government policy one government minister in the past week yeah, all all government uh, decisions are implicitly or explicitly mm. based on a forecast of some description you ask yourself what is the state of the world mm. here is a policy how will implementing that policy change the state of the world if you're in education defense or whatever mm. it doesn't have to be economics in economics there's a sort of rather greater quantitative nailing of the colors to the mast uh, and we don't do that because we think we're smarter than the people in the other areas and we can do everything to one decimal place, it's about being accountable and transparent. So, you know, if you are explicit about these sorts of things, you have a benchmark for saying, well, things have turned out differently. That creates a responsibility on me to mm. explain to people why the story that I thought we were telling six months ago needs to be revised. And uh, as I say, it's easier, I think, for technocrats not always completely easy, as, as Andy implies, to be honest about that than it is for politicians for whom there is a, a perceived political and reputational cost to saying, I've had to change my view on this. It's easier for us. Let's have some questions. Very much plural. All right, uh, first, first one up here. Uh, on the, uh, could you wait for the microphone, please? 
Hi, it's uh, Bill Schomburg from Reuters News Agency. Um, you talked earlier about the broad brush assumptions that you'd made in November, and that included uncertainty about what was going to happen with Brexit. Um, as you approach March and you know, the, the, the one-year clock will start to tick, um, does the lack of any clarity and the, inc the, the remaining uncertainty in the proximity of Brexit date become more of a factor as you uh, start to look at drags on the economy? I'm not sure it becomes more of a factor. As I say, we, we thought it was a sensible thing to put in right at the outset that you were going to have, you know, in particular, business investment decisions. Uh, are, you know, some people are going to delay or to put off projects until they know what the end state is going to be. And that uncertainty lasts until you know when the end state uh, is going to be. I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a gr working out to what degree that... Uh, quantifying the impact that that has had is difficult given the, the quality and the nature of business investment data that you get. It, it, you know, it swings about quite a lot. It is revised quite a lot. My gut instinct would be is that there has been less investment as a result of uncertainty, but actually turning that into, I think, the precise quarterly path of business investment, if we had not voted in a different way, uh, clearly, you, you wouldn't have any confidence and judgment about that, but I think it remains an issue until, and, you know, until people have, a, have an idea of where we end up. Great. Thanks. Uh, um, sorry, yes, here. Um, oh, there's, there's quite a few hands up. If there are people in the next door room, I can offer you the low-tech method of coming to stand in the doorway, <laughs> waving at me. Go ahead. Right. Thanks. Titus Alexander, Democracy Matters. The OBR is part of an important openness of information and transparency, and today, the Open Budget Initiative published a good comparison of governments. So the UK came 10th, which was encouraging. But Out one of how many countries? About 75. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Quite near the top. Um, uh, New Zealand came top. South Africa. They always do. <laughs> um, but the question is really, a lot of this information and the kind of information you produce goes to experts and lobbyists and so forth, and not much to citizens, so they don't necessarily understand the implications of the kind of work that you do and the transparency of the government. So should we be investing more in enabling education to provide that kind of citizenship understanding of the kind of information that you produce so that even at a basic level as part of a democratic right, people can make sense of government budgets? Okay, that's about understanding rather than making the data available. Well, yeah, making the data yeah. available and accessible, right. first of all, of course. Yeah. And the government's actually not been too bad about that, but it's not, it's not in people's hands. People don't know it's there, and if they do have it, they don't know how to make sense of it. On the whole. No, I mean, it's certainly true, I mean, not entirely, you know, uh, partly because of what, do, what we do, and also, you know, for example, the government now brings out whole of government accounts, so a set of accounts for the public sector on the, on, on, as you would do for a private sector company, which, you know, again, it's not going to be the, you know, the subject of you know, endless chat down the dog and duck, but for those people who are, have an interest in you know, an understanding that area, it is useful additional information. And as I say, we, we, have, we have put out a lot more and we publish a lot more information than was published by the Treasury in the old days, and we try to be responsive if people ask us whether we can publish something that we don't uh, already do. I think what you, what you inevitably find to do, and this, with apologies to those of you who read them regularly, leads to the 
increasing length of the documents that you produce is that obviously the, you know, the, the world is made up of groups of people who are terribly excited about local government numbers, who are terribly excited about student loan numbers, who are very excited about alcohol duty numbers. And you know, satisfying those audiences for their own particular interests can end up with a, a product that it becomes harder and harder for any one person to sort of say they want to distill this. What we've tried to do is to, is to produce material you know, that aim, for example, more at a student audience, so non-technical uh, summaries. Material where, crucially, because we're... You know, we're trying to demonstrate that the, that, the, that the material we put out is based on our professional judgment and not politically motivated wishful thinking. We put a lot of emphasis into explaining why the numbers are different from the last time we published them so that people know that there's nothing suspicious about going from one to the other. But a lot of sort of non-technical readers are actually not interested in how it's moved. They just want the picture of how it is today. And that's something where... I mean, frankly, with an organisation of 30 people, the sort of deadlines you confront when you're producing material to accompany a budget, you can't, you know, produce the really short, crisp stuff on exactly the same deadline as the rest. We would do it afterwards. It would be lovely if, you know, you had the sorts of resources to be able to do that more systematically. Clearly, the Bank of England, which is, you know, has a lot more resources than we do, is able to devote a lot more person hours and technology to you know, infographics, videos, and all that sort of stuff, which, you know, we're not, unfortunately, in that market. But, uh, but it's an area where both in this job and, you know, IFS as well, we've seen that as a key part of the role, is to try to make this stuff as available as and accessible as possible. But there's a, there is a limit to how far you can go with it. Thanks very much. Um, here, um, behind, and I'll, I'll come to the back of the room. Third, third row. Hello, uh, Gemma Tetlow from Financial Times. Um, Robert, you said you didn't think it would be sensible for the OBR to produce Brexit scenario forecasts. I know in the past that you've said, obviously, you've got 30 people and there's a limit to the, what you can do with the manpower that you've got. Are there any other reasons apart from resources why you think it would be not be sensible for the OBR to be playing that role? Well, I think there are two things. I mean, one is uh, because we are constrained by legislation to only produce on the basis of current government policy, doing the policy options is, is something it's not clear we could do. Uh, I think partly it was because of the, the nature of the, this particular piece of work is that it's not just a macroeconomic forecast and a fiscal forecast, uh, judging from what I've read about it in the newspapers. There's also you know, analysis of sectoral implications and regional implications, all of which are important, but they're not our area of specialism, which is why, as I say, you, you can see the case for bringing together a range of, of skills across given government departments to go in that, rather than have a body which is fundamentally focused on doing a public finance forecast and the sort of macroeconomic forecast that you need in order to do a public finance forecast, rather than uh, this exercise, which as I understand it, is designed to help a much broader range of policy decisions than simply a judgment about the public finances, which is our core business. Great. Um, right at the back, in the middle, I'll come right. I, I, we've got time, I think, to get in. Some Judge Government, finance function. Could you say a bit about your uh, scrutiny by Parliament? Uh, how does that support your independence? <coughs> yes, I mean, the, uh, the core publications that we produce are formally laid before Parliament, so there's a, there's a set of requirements there. 
Uh, we are obviously um, uh, regularly quizzed by the uh, Treasury Select Committee uh, uh, on the recent reports that we've produced and uh, at slightly lesser frequency by the Scottish and Welsh parliaments as well. Uh, and that can be, you know, that's a useful uh, um, exercise. It's, you know, it's an important part of our accountability. The Treasury Committee also has a veto power over the appointment of myself and my two uh, deputies uh, and similarly the Chancellor can't sack us without them having that approval so it's not just the uh, the confirmation hearings without teeth this in our case it does have it does have teeth I think there's an interesting question though as to whether Parliament more broadly makes the use of the analysis that we produce as it does I think talking to similar organizations in other countries some of them have more engagement with a wider range of parliamentarians rather than the particular focus through the Treasury Committee. I must admit I continue to be slightly frustrated with you know, just the, the, the symbolism of the idea that you have a budget statement in Parliament, the Chancellor sits down and the Leader of the Opposition stands up and responds immediately. I think there would be a powerful signal if the Chancellor sat down and the Speaker said, or whoever it is, right, we will now adjourn for the necessary time for everybody to read the details of the <laughs> forecasts and the policies, and then we will debate their merits, rather than just sailing straight into, into this. And I think that would, uh, uh, that idea of br more broadly engaging a Parliament wouldn't be a bad thing. Um, over here towards the mantelpiece. Russell Lynch from the Evening Standard. Um, without asking you to completely blow the gaff on March's forecasts, um, could you just, you mentioned the December settlement. I just wondered, could you just talk, talk us through briefly the moving parts in that and how it will affect the public finances and would it be a net positive or a negative? Well, as, as I say, we're talking here about the specifics of the financial, so the, the line that we have on the net expenditure transfers. At the moment, what we have done, as I say, is basically to produce a forecast as though we remain a member of the EU. So we calculate what our contributions will be right the way to the end of the five-year forecast. And that we simply say, at some point, you know, 2019, for the sake of argument at the moment, we assume that that switches from being a contribution to the EU to being a alternative domestic spending plus possible continued contribution to the EU and you just basically have the forecast based on that uh, on that total. What we'll be able to do now as I say is to have uh, a clear idea of what the concrete contributions will be but if we stick with that assumption that the government will spend the difference between what it would be contributing to the EU if we remained a member and, and that new number, then the bottom line effect on the public, there wouldn't be a bottom line effect on the public finances. You're just changing what is currently a sort of a light switch that we move from we're in and it's a contribution to the EU to it's spending on something else and have a, a slightly more nuanced line in which that declines over time. And we can then say whether it looks likely that this will in total add up to the sorts of numbers that the government's been talking about publicly. Certainty, it's a slightly more certainty if it's going to be in the forecast. 
No, I mean, it's basically, it's with it, it's the composition of the spending line. You're moving from a very stylized assumption that you just move this into some other sort of spending to having a rather, you know, uh, a more specific line for what the, the direct expenditure transfer related to the withdrawal uh, settlement would be. And then you're still left with that question of, well, how much does the government want to tell us about what it might spend the rest of the money on? Over by the door. Sorry. Um, I come from a tradition where the independent was within department, so it was the GES and the GSS, as opposed to the independence of the agency. Um, I, maybe it's my tradition, I much prefer the first to the second um, and sort of advised the permanent secretary not to set up an independent Bank of England, you know, um, is it But um, I'm wondering, the reason for this is, do you think it affects the quality of what I would call projections, you would call forecasts, because you're further away from um, the developments and monitoring of this? Because from outside, it looks like you have some sort of systemic um, faults in yours. Currently, you're underestimating the improvement in public finances. Um, Thank you. Um, thanks so much. Would you like to say your name? You don't have to. Uh, Bill Wells. I used to be in the employment department. Thank you. I think there's an interesting, because it, it can go in, in kind of two ways here. One is your right that we are not as directly involved in uh, you know, the monitoring. and you know, it's, It would be the same people who were doing the monitoring and doing the forecast in the model that you would describe here. That, is not, you know, that doesn't always work perfectly as well. And so you've got the trade-off between that greater degree of distance versus the fact that we're now able to inject a greater degree of challenge into looking at those numbers. So I, I, a good case in part in your old bailiwick is that we've produced a forecast last, uh, we produced a, uh, a document last month looking at the forecasting of universal credit expenditure, where I think that that is a good example of where it is useful to have external challenge and scrutiny from outside. This is a very, very difficult thing to forecast, as you know, moving in the transition from one system to another. It's like, as I always liken it to, you know, it's, it's the tightrope walker walking from one relatively stable bit of earth to another. When you have one stable system, it's, it's relatively easy to forecast. The stable system at the other end is relatively easy. Getting between the two and understanding what's going on in that is not at all straightforward, which we are finding with universal credit. But I think there, that report... Uh, again, not going to be the subject of detailed discussion down the dog and duck for everybody, but the process of going through that, of talking to the DWP people uh, about challenging, about them having coming back on suggestions, is actually probably more productive than having either one of us try to do it on our own. Great. But I think that, you know, I can see your point, and it would vary, I suspect, from area to area and from some of the livelier, less groupthink-prone group parts of government to, to somewhere it might be in the other direction. Great. Uh, here in the front. 
Thank you. Uh, Vicky Price, uh, former John Head of the Government Economic Service. So I have some sympathy with what Bill's just been talking about. But my, my, my question is on migration. Because, in fact, I always quote the OBR work on, on how if we drop below a certain level of net migration a year, that leads to higher debt-to-GDP ratio, higher deficit-to-GDP ratio, low productivity, and therefore lower growth. Uh, and I can quote that until I'm blue in the face, but of course no one is listening, certainly from the politician's point of view. Uh, can you, you got anything to say about the sort of scrutiny that you fed on this, whether you know, what you produce is actually listened to at the end of the day? Uh, to make a difference because we like you being independent so that these things can have an impact. And, and it's very frustrating in this particular case, it doesn't seem to. I don't know. I, mean, I think the thing you obviously have to remember with migration is that this is a broader, you know, there are a broader set of policy objectives that government has in this area than directly its impact on the public finances. And it is our job to say what we think that the impact was likely to be on the public finances, it is not our job to say, to judge from that whether we think that a particular regime or target for migration is sensible. You're right in the sense that, I mean, this is a fairly typical outcome. You'd find the same thing again with, with, with studies in the United States, that net inward migration tends to be net positive for the public finances simply because net inward migrants are more likely to be of working age and therefore relatively high taxpayers rather than consumers of spending uh, than the uh, existing native population. However, as you know, a lot of the concerns around migration are not around the aggregate effect, but around the particular pressures that it can place on public service provision in particular areas of the country, which is a very important issue, but not, again, our job is to look at the aggregate public finance projection. So I think you know, people do pay attention to it, but I'm conscious that, you know, we have a, you know, we have a direction of, of, uh, of impact in the public finances, but that is not and should not be the driver of, of overall policy decisions, which spread over a much wider range of, of concerns and issues. There you go, the front row here. We've just got a few minutes more. Uh, Will Halliday, IEA. Um, Jonathan Portes, amongst various other centre-left economists, have at times criticised the OBR for kind of underestimating the distortion effects of reduced government spending. And so, in in light of this, what would the implications for the OBR be for a Corbyn-led government, and in particular a um, excuse me, um, a McDonnell-led Treasury? (laughs) Well. As I say, one of the issues which has been twice considered since the OBR came into being, it was considered when our original legislation was being designed in 2011, and it re-emerged again at the end of the 2010 to 2015 Parliament, was whether we should explicitly look at the policy platforms of opposition parties and run the slide rule. Uh, over those and produce an estimate uh, of their impact. And on both occasions, Parliament has taken the view that we shouldn't do that. Uh, The argument most often put forward is that it would drag us even more into highly party politically contested territory than would otherwise be the case. The example, the international example where this the alternative approach is taken with sort of the greatest depth and thoroughness and uh, Uh, professionalism I think is the Netherlands where our opposite number uh, uh, the now unfortunately named Central Planning Bureau although they only use the initials uh, these days uh, does a study of 
all the policy platforms of the uh, of the different parties in the run-up to an election uh, and assesses you know what the impacts would be on growth on the public finances on a variety of other uh, indicators of interest I mean it's a hugely impressive piece of work which last time they did it took 80 people three you know full-time equivalent three months to produce so it's way away from anything that we would be resourced to do so i'll have to i will have to wait until such time as there is an alternative government and i you know we have those those policies and so just to, to extend at. that if there were uh, a corbyn mcdonald government uh, in place and said we're going to renationalize stuff at that point but not before you could start Absolutely, I mean, and, it, and it would be it would be down to their their fiscal events. So you know, an alternative government arises, uh, they will then decide to have a budget, or you know, either immediately or on the usual timetable, depending on mm. how they want to do it. And then we will go into exactly the same uh, discussions that we had, obviously, as, as we did when we had the transition from the coalition mm. uh, to to the current government, and uh, you you address it at that point. I mean, on some of those broader policy questions, I mean, it, it, it's it's worth saying that. You know, we can only incorporate policy changes or policy announcements or changes into the forecast when they are sufficiently concrete and firm mm. and clear and the timing is clear uh, for us to be able to do that and to be able to produce a forecast on a year-by-year basis. So airy statements of we're going to sell something or we're going to buy something don't get in until we, we have a clear idea of you know, what the time scale is going date. to be. We need you know, We need dates and we need numbers. We need to put the numbers on a date. Let's squeeze in one more. Did you want to? All right, over, over, over here. And I'm sorry, patient. Oh, oh uh, Anthony Rubin from the BBC. How close have you come working late into the night to saying actually what Parliament's asked us to do going into the fourth and fifth year involves such profound uncertainty that really we can't say anything coherent about it. Okay, thank you. And let me take this one in the What second, about whether, should we have a forecast horizon that goes out as far as five years? Yeah. Uh, well, well, again, it's not our choice because we're required by the legislation to produce it over that period. I think it's understandable that, given that's the duration of a parliament, and that typically you would have public expenditure plans set out over a three or four year horizon, that, that is a sensible, that's a sensible time horizon over which to look. I mean, one of the issues, obviously, is you know, how firm are the policy commitments at the end of that. So you know, the government can decide that it's going to have a tightening. of. This is a fairly typical uh, uh, pattern. I've called it the Augustinian feature of this, is that is the government's often announced budgets that give away money in the near term but then say, don't worry, we're going to take the money away at the end. And of course, as the forecast moves forward year by year, years four and five never come. Uh, and that you can see that you can see that pattern. We've highlighted it in a couple of, of our WIOs and, and a couple of things there. So, I, but I think our job there is to highlight that, not to just you know ignore it. Uh, and so, I, I I think that the rigor that this places on the government to be clear about what its policy is over that sort of horizon is, is useful. And I would distinguish it, and this is the distinction we make, and I know Bill would make it in a different way, between the forecasts we do over a five-year period. Now, those are conditional forecasts. They're not our best guess of what is going to happen. They're our best guess of what would happen on the set of government policies as they are stated at the moment. You know, so 
We assume on the grounds that it is government policy that fuel duty will rise in line with inflation. If I was doing an unconstrained forecast, I would assume that fuel duty never rises in line with inflation. Uh, the projections over a longer are inevitable. So we, we do projections out to 50 years over periods in which most government policy is not defined, and that's necessarily more stylized. You're making assumptions about the shares of GDP you, you spend on things, but you can still say useful and interesting things, for example, about the evolution of student loan policy. Uh, and what we're also very careful about is if the government announces you know, policy measures that shift money from one year to another... You know, you can easily do a three-year forecast. You make things look very nice in years one to three by basically shoveling money that would have been in year four and five into years two and three. When that happens, we make sure we do a long-term projection so you catch the, uh, the full impact of that over time. So I think there's a virtue of having a longish horizon as long as you are upfront about the greater uncertainty that inevitably applies. So one of the ways we can demonstrate that is with you know, fan charts which show what the average error is at a five-year horizon, which not entirely surprisingly is greater than the average error at a two-year horizon. Really interesting answer. If you can make it a micro question, we can get it Thanks. in. Thanks. Um, Benedict Brogan from Noise Banking Group. I just wondered if you could reflect on the state of institutions. It's very fashionable to attack them or delegitimize them at the moment. Um, does that worry you? Is that just a natural byproduct of a febrile political debate, or what should institutions be doing? I, thi I think all you know, institutions, and particularly in the current environment, you know, having those sorts of attacks and that sort of uh, that sort of picture of the environment is entirely what you would expect. I mean, certainly as regards the civil service. I mean, our, our staff. I'm not a civil servant. Our staff are enormously professional uh, individuals with, with huge in, in integrity. I think it's important also, though, to be aware of what people's, responsibility, people's responsibilities are. Civil servants are not members of independent think tanks. They're there to support the government of the day in doing what it wants to do. They're also there to, you know, departmental civil servants are there to help their ministers argue the cases that they want to argue within government. And that's entirely uh, appropriate for that to happen. Uh, and so I think, you know, as I say, when it comes to the outputs of things like our forecasts, of things like this Brexit study, I would no way say, how dare you question this? We're an independent body. I would say we're an independent body. You know, precisely the point is, you know, do come and question this and explain as clearly as you can what are the judgments that you've made, what are the assumptions that you have made that leads to the results this comes up with, how would it look different if you made those different. Uh, and, you know, people should look as sceptically as our stuff, they should look sceptically at stuff the civil service produces, they should look sceptically at stuff that politicians uh, produce and, you know, a combination of recognising the uncertainty, of us being upfront about the uncertainty around these sorts of numbers, but also being willing to engage in that debate to have people say, well, okay, can you justify why it is that you've done this? What's actually moved that? Why is the difference here between, you know, what, what, it, what is it that gets you from this number to that number? What's your, what's your basis? We shouldn't be afraid. That's not an attack on an institution. It's an appropriate request for, uh, for accountability and openness. Thank you for that ringing defence at the end. Um, uh, Robert, there's obviously a, a, a clamour for you, the OBR to be an all-purpose uh, economic <laughs> forecast in all kinds of ways. So, um, thank you for uh, talking so openly and fluently uh, to such a, a wide range of questions. Thanks for coming. Thank you very much for your Great questions. Thank you. Very much.